0: Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. and here's a question for you. What comes to mind when you hear the word chemistry? Do you head back to the high school science lab and experiments gone awry? Do you think about ionic versus covalent bonds? The periodic table and its myriad charms? Hydrogen.
1: Helium. Lithium. lithium beryllium, beryllium. Boron.
0: Or instead, does your mind take you here? My darling, you are my valentine. I adore you. I worship the ground you walk upon. Well, no matter where your mind goes, we've got you covered this week with a show all about the complex, often mysterious realm of Chemistry. We'll meet a scientist using chemistry to improve on life-saving drugs.
2: Big Pharma doesn't actually have the mission of making certain that medicines are available for everybody in the world.
0: And we'll learn more about the science of blind dating.
3: Chemistry, you know, from an academic standpoint, you could have one explanation, but in terms of romantic explanation, it almost is the same thing. It's watching two agents interact.
0: First, though, we're going to meet a Washingtonian who's concocted a whole menu of ways to harness the power of Cupid's arrow...
4: I'm going to pull up the mixture from the bottom, because it's a tall drink.
0: ...in a glass.
4: i will give you a taste.
0: And this particular glass...
4: All right. All right. Let's give this a go.
0: ...contains a mixture of liquor, flavorings, and herbs that, according to our gal here, is destined to get you in the mood this Valentine's Day. Wait, can I have one more sip before we move on? Yeah. Good time. <laughs> Gina Chersavani is a longtime bartender here in Washington, or as she calls herself,
4: Mixtress. I like calling myself the Mixtress because it's a little bit naughty and a little bit nice.
0: We're at the Eddie Bar inside Hank's Oyster Bar on Capitol Hill.
4: This Valentine's Day weekend, Hank's and
0: Eddie are offering a tasting menu inspired by Aphrodite. Each dish, many of which
4: involve those famous oysters, is paired with a duo of his and hers drinks. And Of course, I go with his and his and hers and hers, so don't worry. We have something planned for everybody. Each
0: cocktail couplet is named after well-known romantic pairs who've been known to squabble from time to time. So you've got the Al Bundy and the Peg Bundy, the Richard Burton and the Elizabeth
4: Taylor. And we have the um, Fred and Ethel. It is a ginger rye drink for the man, and then it's going to be the cucumber and the lavender for the woman.
0: But why ginger and rye for the guy and cucumber and lavender for the gal? Well, Gina says it all boils down to chemistry, a subject the University of Maryland Science and Art major has been teaching in her new class, Cocktail Chemistry.
4: What exactly does that entail? What are you doing with the students? We go through like, different herbs, uh, flavors, their profiles, uh, like ginger, fresh-snap ginger. You know, what does it do to a woman? Well, it makes her uh, think of cleanliness. Things smell like ginger um, perfumes. For men, when they eat it, it, you know, it keeps the hoo-ha going. And um, that's what we've got to do in the class.
0: Is there something that you find that you bring up with the students that, like, surprises them more than anything? They're like,
4: no way. Uh, soap. Cleanliness. And that being the best thing for women. Laundry. Now, all the things that are in laundry detergent, what's the number one thing they add laundry detergent? Lavender. Fresh laundry is said to be the best aphrodisiac for a woman.
0: Right. I'm not going to lie. I love the smell of fresh laundry. <laughs> but, that's,
4: but, I mean, if there was a way I could just make a fresh linen cocktail, I think, that, and not be the grossest thing that you ever had, maybe I would, I would really hit it. <laughs> cool. okay. I love this, like, wall of jars. I can't really recognize most things. Oh, cinnamon sticks. Yeah, cinnamon sticks. Like, right there. Like, that's a really good one for mm. um, men. So cassia, right? So cassia is found in different liquors and just, like, a, a root. But it's very appealing to, like, men's libido. It's the reason why when you go to a, like, generally, in general, men stick to, you know, something with bitters in their cocktail or a Manhattan's or something. Just that flavor is what they like. And cucumber is another one. A cucumber is very appealing to the sensuality of women. They really, like, respond to it. It's, that's why when you go into Body Works or, I don't know, down the aisle in CVS, what's the number one flavor? A cucumber melon. They're all things that remind you of that euphoria, of like again, of like love, friendship, warmth. Um, another cool one is sassafras. Sassafras to women smells a lot like you know root beer or you know some sort of raisiny. It's got a raisiny undertone for us, but for men, it is a sweeter sensation, and it is definitely found in most colognes. We have this drink here. At Hank's, which we do with a little bit of sassafras and orange, like an orange soda. Um, And I love to mix it with a little bit of rye. So now rye has, rye is just a strong, delicious liquor, right? But it really, really lends itself to the orange and to the sassafras. And orange and orange scents and peels is just really enlightening, opening. And if you are missing aphrodisiacs, if you need a really quick fix of how do I get myself there, Gin is one of the best things that you could do. You could just go buy gin, and it contains all the things that get people in the mood. The juniper, the cassia, the lemon peel, orange. Uh, it's pretty interesting. And if you're going to have cocktails that give you um, some sort of feeling, you could start there. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and to, and to educate me. Yes, of course. Have a cocktail. Hang out. Twist
0: my arm. Done. <laughs> Gina Trezivani is the mixtress at the Eddie Bar inside Hank's Oyster Bar on Capitol Hill. Hank's is serving its Valentine's Day tasting menu all weekend long. To learn more about Gina's cocktail chemistry class and to see photos of Gina mixing one of her love potions, visit our website, MetroConnection.org. So now that Gina Tersavani has taught us how to get ourselves in the mood, let's talk about another crucial step of romance, dating. Each week for the past six years, the Washington Post has been sending strangers out on dinner dates and then writing it up in a popular magazine feature called Date Lab. The results range from delightful to disastrous. So what exactly is it that sparks chemistry between two people? Jacob Fenston brings us this look at the science of matchmaking. Turns out,
5: it's actually not a science. In fact, a few years ago, the matchmakers at Date Lab decided to let a monkey pick that week's couple.
4: Who do you want? Who do you want?
5: That's from a video on The Washington Post website.
4: Look at all these nice people. Can you pick somebody?
5: The date turned out really well, actually. Better than a lot of dates arranged by humans.
4: I think I'm better than a monkey. <laughs> the monkey did a good job, though.
5: Christina Antonitis is Datelab's head matchmaker. She pairs up couples based on their responses to a quirky online questionnaire.
4: We ask them for a lot of their likes and dislikes. We ask them who they think their type is. The one thing I knew was going to catch
0: was when I had submitted my application that asked for your type.
5: Datelab sent Shelly Smith on a blind date a few months ago.
0: I had put... um the brawny paper towel man is my dream man. <laughs> so sure enough, this tall, red-headed guy walks in, and I'm like, oh,
6: I don't even have to guess. He's totally for me.
3: <laughs> the tall, red-headed guy was Brian Fitzgerald. We had a great time, probably talked for 90%. Eight for ten percent. The morning
5: after the date, Christina Antonitis, or another date lab reporter, interviews the daters over the phone to see how it went, and they always ask about chemistry.
3: We do always ask that. Was there chemistry? Yes.
0: I absolutely think that there was chemistry there.
3: Chemistry, you know, from an academic standpoint. You could have one explanation, but in terms of romantic explanation, it almost is the same thing. It's watching two agents interact.
0: Each person's got to have certain components, and either those components click, and poof, there's your love potion number nine,
4: <laughs> or those components don't click.
5: For Smith and Fitzgerald, things clicked on that first date. Eventually, though, the chemistry fizzled. But occasionally, when Date Lab puts two people together, there is an intense chemical reaction, intensely bad. Years ago, on one date, the daters hated each other so much, they both rated the night as zero on a scale of one to five. But in the annals of bad dates, that one may have been topped by the date Jack Gray went on last October.
7: You know, I didn't have high expectations, but I figured it'd be fun. And, uh, you know, the Washington Post was generous enough to uh, pay for a meal.
5: On paper, Gray and his date had some things in common. They both mentioned they liked horses.
7: Yeah, I think she connects better with a horse. <laughs> Her communication skills were zero.
5: The woman in question declined an interview, but told the Washington Post, quote, he was just completely and totally and 100 percent not anything I would be interested in. So after a few minutes of tense conversation,
7: maybe 25 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe,
5: she got up to go to the bathroom and he waited at the table and waited.
7: I figured when she didn't come back in 10 minutes, I was pulling the plug. You know, I I sent a waitress in there to look for it, and she said, no, didn't find anyone. The
5: woman had slipped out of the restaurant without saying anything. The people behind Date Lab say there's about a 40% success rate if success is wanting to go on another date with a person. But there are some really successful dates that maybe make the whole experiment worthwhile.
0: We both kind of sometimes forget that we met on Date Lab.
5: In 2010, Date Lab set up Anna Russell on a blind date with Daniel Zelasky. We just had a blast. I didn't want that night to end. It was like we were in Vegas. You know, time was just flying by. They stayed out so late on that first date they both had to call in sick to work the next day. A few days later, they went on date number
1: two.
0: We were together like 13 hours. Like I didn't go home till like midnight again. I think, like, after the third date, we were, like, together.
1: I don't know if there was one moment when I said to myself, like, this is the person, you know, that early that I want to be with forever. But I certainly said to myself, this is a person who I want to be with. I mean, if every day could be like this. Why wouldn't you want to be in that situation every day?
5: Anna Russell is now Anna Zalasky. The two got married in June in Missoula, where they're both now studying at the University of Montana. So far, Datelab has engineered more than 300 dates. That's led to a total of three weddings minus one divorce. Christina Antonitus, who's been working for Datelab since the beginning, says one thing she's learned is that people don't always know what they want in a partner.
4: We do We have a lot of people who say, I want tall, dark, and handsome. <laughs> a lot of women. And, uh, you know, I always am thinking that maybe that shouldn't be a criteria.
5: Because if Datelab sticks you with a short, bald guy, you might just hit it off and end up getting married. It's happened before. I'm Jacob Fenston.
0: Do you have a dating horror story? Or the opposite? Did you find lasting chemistry from a chance encounter? We want to hear all about it. Send an email to metro at wamu.org. Time for a break, but when we get back... Using chemistry to keep soldiers safe.
8: Does that look like there's had an explosive in it? No, it's right. empty.
0: Plus, investigating the agency overseeing the Silver Line project in Virginia.
6: But then she was hired to a special job created just for her at Emwa for $180,000 a year. And this situation's never been fully explained.
0: That and more in a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're talking chemistry, and thus far we've been focusing on chemistry of the interpersonal sort. But now we're going to look at how chemistry is being used to save lives. In just a few minutes, we'll hear from scientists building gadgets that rely on chemistry to keep soldiers safe by detecting explosives. First, though, we'll look at some new chemistry being used in the production of life-saving medicines. The world's big pharmaceutical companies are mostly known for two things, discovering major new drugs and making lots of money. But as Jonathan Wilson tells us, a Howard University professor and his students are proving that while discovering new drugs is essential, refining older drugs could be just as important.
9: Professor Joseph Fortunak empties a bag of round tablets onto a desk in a basement chemistry lab at Howard University. The tablets are chalky white with little beige speckles. The bulbous little white discs are a lot larger than, say, the generic aspirin you can get at a local drugstore, but they still look small enough to swallow without much effort. These are tablets of amodiaquin. Before we get to what exactly amodiaquin is, Consider the professor himself, the longish disheveled white hair and mustache, the v-neck sweater, the deliberate exact sentences that spill effortlessly out of him. This is a man who was born to teach chemistry. Tiffany Ellison, one of his Ph.D. students, says Fertunak is famous for scribbling impromptu chemistry lessons on napkins and paper towels.
10: You have to be ready to do chemistry everywhere. You have to be ready for a presentation at all times in the middle of the hallway or anything.
9: And yet, as the professor tells it, he struggled mightily in his first college chemistry course.
2: I was absolutely certain as a freshman at Purdue University that I was going to flunk chemistry and I'd have to go back to work in the steel mill.
9: But Fortunac says he tested well enough to get into an honors course.
2: And they let us do whatever we want, in honors chemistry lab. I convinced my lab mate that we should do brain surgery on cockroaches. And I guess that's what turned me into a chemist.
9: He went on to get his Ph.D. in organic chemistry. That led to a 21-year career working for three huge pharmaceutical companies, where he helped shepherd 15 new drugs to market. But it was only after more than two decades as a high-level chemist working for Big Pharma that Fortunac made the transition to what he says is his dream job, teaching and researching at a university.
2: I came to Howard University because it was clear to me that Big Pharma doesn't actually have the job or the mission of making certain that medicines are available for everybody in the world.
9: So back to those round white tablets, a Amodiaquin is a drug used to combat malaria. Malaria isn't common in the U.S. or Europe, and so there isn't much incentive for Western companies to spend money and time researching new drugs. Imediquin, for instance, has been around for decades. Most of the world's supply of anti-malarial medicine is manufactured in India and China, but the greatest need is in poorer African countries such as Nigeria, where some estimates figure that a child dies every minute from malaria.
2: So the paradigm that we're living in now is that in approximately the year 2000, the the United Nations and the World Health Organization decided that they would undertake a a huge program to create a system in which medicines would be donated to people who otherwise don't have access. And let's call those low- and middle-income countries. Well, that system wasn't meant to last forever.
9: Fortunac says while the donation program has put all sorts of life-saving drugs into the hands of people who need them, it simply isn't a sustainable model.
2: Well, now think about it. There is a pharmaceutical industry in Africa, but if you're donating medicines into Africa, your donations are actually militating towards crushing the growth and the development of that regional pharmaceutical industry.
9: And that's where Fortunac comes in. He spent the past eight years at Howard figuring out how to make common anti-malarial and anti-HIV drugs in cheaper, greener, and more efficient ways. He says African countries generally don't have the robust petrochemical industry from which big pharma obtains solvents needed in the production of medicine.
2: Can we challenge ourselves to make chemistry so that we can manufacture medicines using the materials that are available? in the markets where we would like regional production to
9: occur. Fortunak and his students and colleagues are challenging themselves and the rest of the world because they're getting results. He says he's proudest of the work they've done on a couple of HIV drugs. The antiretroviral tenofovir disoproxil fumarate now costs about a fourth of what it cost when it was first launched by drug companies in India in 2007. That's thanks to refinement in the manufacturing process discovered by Fortunac students. Efavirenz, a drug that Fortunac himself helped bring to market in 1998, now cost about 11% of what it cost when it was first introduced in India in 2005. And the
2: great thing about that is the volume of that drug in low and middle income countries in 2012 is 750 metric tons. That represents well over 3 million people taking that drug, when in 2005 that was essentially zero. <laughs>
9: So how did Fortunak, who had opportunities to end up at a deep-pocketed Ivy League research institution, choose the historically respected but relatively underfunded Howard University? Fortunak says bigger universities were excited about his ideas, but were mostly focused on how much money they could make with new patents. At Howard, the emphasis was different. Bob Catchings said to me, Dr. Fortunac, we're not a
2: rich university at Howard, but tell me something. How many lives could we save?
9: Fortunac says there is much more work to do, especially when it comes to improving access to drugs for diabetes and heart disease and cancer, diseases that kill more people than HIV and malaria, but don't, as Fortunac says, have the public relations behind them. I'm Jonathan Wilson.
0: Dr. Fortunak will be speaking about his work and other green chemistry ideas Tuesday night at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. You can find more information about that talk on our website, metroconnection.org. We're going to head to another science lab now, one that's geared toward protecting members of the military while they're deployed overseas. Matt M. Casey has the story.
11: Not far from Washington, D.C., a team of civilian scientists at Virginia's Fort Belvoir use chemistry to keep U.S. soldiers safe from explosives. That sound you hear is the air pump in a machine called FIDO. The pistol-shaped device sniffs the air, searching for particles called nitroaromatic compounds emitted by military-grade explosives. Aaron LaPointe, an explosive detection researcher at the Army's Night Vision and Electronic Sensor Directorate, says FIDO is built around a polymer coating on the inside of a narrow tube. When exposed to light, the polymer generates its own glow.
8: When those molecules come close to this, they'll be pulled in. And then they will adhere. This could land right on that polymer material. When they do that, there's an electronic transfer process that happens, and it shuts the light off. I always use the, the analogy of Christmas lights.
11: When those Christmas lights blink off, the machine lets you know. In an explosive-free environment, Fido's output sounds like a Geiger counter. But when explosives are in the area, it sounds like this.
8: Okay, no in that. No, no mistaken that, right?
11: To demonstrate Fido's sensitivity, LaPointe holds an empty vial in front of the sniffer.
8: At one point, I put a small speck of uh, TNT here, and then I pulled it out, right. uh, I think years ago. As you can see, the sensitivity, I mean, uh, you, you can't tell me where that explosive is, right? Does that look like had an explosive in it? No, it's right.
11: empty. LaPointe says these devices help soldiers find targets of interest in areas of interest. Between the machine's calibration and the soldier's training, they can tell the difference between harmless spent gunpowder and the very real threat of an improvised bomb. But while FIDO is impressive, this device is already out of
8: date. The hardware that you're seeing here was developed back in the 06 timeframe. There have been improvements made since then, I can't get into that, but there's work going on to improve its uh, usability.
11: But even the improved FIDO would probably be out of place in LaPointe's lab. The model LaPointe demonstrates has the tight, compact appearance of a mass-produced product. The projects he
8: usually works on lack that kind of polish. We work on things that are more, you know, put together with duct tape and network analyzers on on a cart like this. We're trying to explore the at the scientific level what are the, what are the fundamentals that we can apply to the problem. Citing
11: security reasons, LaPointe and his colleagues say they can't talk about the specifics of their current work. Developing a new sensor can take years or decades, LaPointe says, and he doesn't want enemy combatants to know how to defeat a new tool before it reaches the battlefield. But he can speak in broad terms.
8: We have on our team about 15 engineers and scientists uh, looking at different discipline areas. Some are acoustics experts, some are metal detection experts. Uh, we have some laser experts. So we, we, we try to cross the board, uh, have have people that are ground on those fundamentals across all of you know of, of physics and, and chemistry so that we can try to apply that to the problem. Each
11: approach presents its own technical hurdles, which LaPointe's team battles on a regular basis, but his group also has to take the soldiers into account. Directorate spokesperson Kimberly Bell puts it like this. How easy is it for an 18-year-old In the field to use. Beyond simplicity, Lapointe has to make sure the finished products don't break, don't weigh the soldier down, and don't interfere with his other jobs, and that's something he says his team tries to take into account from the earliest stages of development. Lapointe says the challenge of trying to find and detect hidden explosives is humbling, and there's good reason why Congress has been funding such initiatives in recent years. In 2010, Wired Magazine reported that the Pentagon had spent $19 billion on bomb detection equipment in the previous six years.
8: So these, these type of things uh, do not come around quickly. Stay, it takes uh, you know, steady perseverance and understanding the, the fundamentals and then trying to apply that to the problem. Despite the obstacles, Bell says the payoff of this work can be huge.
11: One of the center's past coordinators shared a story upon her retirement about how Directorate Technology saved her husband. He was actually in a vehicle using the technology that she'd worked on, and it saved his life when his vehicle actually ran into some buried mines that were in the road. You know, when she told us the story, she got teary-eyed and said, I can't believe something that I worked on, what seemed like a million years ago, saved my husband's life. That time, it was a former coordinator's husband. Next time, it could be your neighbor. I'm Matt M. Casey.
0: We're going to hop away from this week's theme for just a bit and do a little investigating with someone we haven't heard from in a while transportation reporter Martin DeCaro. Martin's been doing some pretty big investigative work about the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority, or MWA. MWA is the entity in charge of the $5.5 billion Silver Line rail project to Dallas International Airport. Last year, an audit by the U.S. Department of Transportation revealed what it called a culture of nepotism at MWA. Martin did some digging into that allegation and has new details on the political maneuvering that resulted in two pro-labor members of EMWA's board resigning. And Martin joins me now here in the studio. Hi, Martin. Hello, Rebecca. All right. So, Martin, one of the two people who resigned was a woman named Mame Riley. Tell us about her situation.
6: Mame is a Democratic Party activist. She resigned from the airport's authority board of directors for health reasons last year. But then she was hired to a special job created just for her at EMWA for one hundred eighty thousand dollars a year. And this situation's never been fully explained. Former board member Bob Brown is a Democrat whose term expired last year. He says MOI board vice chairman Tom Davis, a Republican appointed by Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell, orchestrated the hiring of Riley. He says he knows this because both Riley and Davis told him so.
9: Tom was the one that conceived of the idea of how to persuade Maim Riley to resign her seat and open up that prior Democratic appointment for
1: McDonnell to fill.
0: So why was it so important, from their perspective, to get her off the board?
6: Well, Governor McDonnell replaced her with Todd Stottlemyre, and in doing so, the Republican administration in Richmond secured another Republican vote against a pro-labor provision set in the bidding process for Phase Two of the Silver Line. That provision is known as a PLA, or Project Labor Agreement. It was fought by the Virginia governor and Republicans in the General Assembly, who threatened to withhold $150 million in funding. EMWA had defended the pro-labor provision against these attacks for months, but bowed to this pressure and voted to kill the PLA on June 6th. Bob Brown says politics should never interfere with the workings of an agency like EMWA.
9: Nobody did anything
10: illegal on this, but it goes against the grain of the notion of these kinds of non-political regional agencies that are supposed to be uh, regional collaborations, have appointments that are
9: staggered in time, so no one governor or no one mayor makes all the appointments to the
6: board. Again, Brown says Tom Davis orchestrated this deal.
0: Well, what does Davis have to say about that?
6: He denies it.
10: There were other people that I'm not going to get into that had basically initiated this conversation. I... Didn't have a dog in that fight, but I thought getting her off the board, frankly, at that point would be a win-win for everybody. Uh, So I I acquiesced. I didn't raise an objection to it.
0: I understand Davis testified before Congress last year about Emma's problems and was asked about Riley's hiring. What did he say? At that time, he said he was only aware of it.
10: Well, I was aware. I mean, I, 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 there were board members. It was run by, so it, it was not. So was it approved by the board? Or no, not it was approved not approved, by the, approved by the board. This is his. Is authority. that standard practice? Uh, I think the board uh, generally the uh, CEO acts, and he sounds sounds this out. This was a complicated. This was a complicated uh, situation.
0: So this pro labor provision, the the project labor agreement, it was overturned. Um, can you remind us why that's so important?
6: Well, it'll be up to the contractor to decide whether to enter a PLA with a union workforce when construction of phase two of the Silver Line begins later this year. And that's how many officials in the Right to Work Virginia want it. But it's important to note that phase one of the Silver Line was built under a PLA, and the airport's authority CEO, Jack Potter, credits that with keeping the project on time and on budget with an outstanding safety record.
0: I see. Okay. But now, Mame Riley, she wasn't the only pro-labor member of the board who resigned, right? There was also a guy named Dennis Martier. and I understand you have emails with more information on that.
6: Yes. A week after EMWA overturned the PLA, Governor McDonnell attempted to remove Dennis Martier from the board for cause. Martier is a labor union official. He supported the project labor agreement. Emails sent by Tom Davis, Stottlemyer, and board member Rusty Conner, enclosed in a Fairfax Circuit Court filing, suggest the three men were aware of the governor's intention to dump Martier four months earlier and communicated with Republican officials in Richmond to secure Martier's removal. Davis says he did want Martier out, but not for political reasons.
10: My job was to try to get a rail system built. This board was dysfunctional. It wasn't just the PLA. It was the lack of transparency. There were 20 things that were going wrong at that point.
0: So, Martin, what should we make of all this political maneuvering?
6: Well, I talked with Melanie Sloan. She's the executive director of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. She says agencies like MWA should not be riddled with political infighting.
2: This is a board that's dealing with so many critical transportation issues. It really shouldn't be marred by political infighting. Given all that has gone on in the past couple of years with the board, it really seems like the best course of action would be a clean sweep and an entirely new set of
6: board members. And all this scrutiny comes as MWA prepares to begin the next phase of the Silver Line. Contractors' bids for the project are due April 19th.
0: Well, Martin DeCaro, thank you so much for taking us behind the scenes on this one. You're welcome. And you can read more about Martin's investigation and see those emails he dug up on our website, metroconnection.org. Up next, we'll visit two of Maryland's kinship communities, towns settled by former slaves after the Civil War.
10: To come here and see the history alive and still alive is part of why I fell in uh, in love with with
0: Scotland. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And this week, in honor of Valentine's Day, we're talking about chemistry. Earlier in the show, we went behind the bar with DC's very own Mixtress and learned about cocktail chemistry. And we got up close and personal with the folks behind Date Lab, the Washington Post's experiment in blind dating. But to kick off this part of the show, we're going to tip our hats not so much to the holiday we're celebrating this week, but to the event we're celebrating all of February, African American History Month. Across Montgomery County, Maryland, you'll find about 40 communities that played a very particular role in the region's and the nation's African-American history. They were all settled by freed slaves in the 19th century and include places like Littonsville, Lincoln Park, Sugarland, Jerusalem, Tobytown, Stewartown, Town, Kengar, Sandy Spring, and Scotland. They're often referred to as kinship communities. I don't know the formal history of the origins of the name kinship. Author and journalist John Muller hails from
3: the Sandy Spring area. But I'll just say from my uh, experiences growing up, for example, there was the Briscoe family. Briscoe family grew up right around Zion or Brookville Road. They had a very large extended family. And like a um, fellow I went went to school with, he called people his like his brothers or cousins that didn't necessarily have like the same last name. I don't think they were of blood relation, but they grew up in the same area their parents might have grown up with each other. Their grandparents grew up with each other. And so you have these bonds, these relationships that are passed down from generation to generation.
0: And indeed, these generations go back quite a ways. As Muller drives me around his old stomping grounds, we stop at a cemetery right next to Mount Zion United Methodist Church, which many people say was the first church in the county to be purchased by blacks. Can we see dates on any of these headstones?
3: See, look, now this person... 103 years old, 1841 to 1945.
0: Wow, some long lives here. Sandy Spring is a relatively rural community. While it was settled by Quakers in the 1700s, in the 1800s it became this enclave for
3: emancipated slaves. They had kind of the ability, let's say, to police themselves. It was uh, very self-contained.
0: But since then, successors to these freed slaves have seen that self-contained security decline. A few years ago, Montgomery County told residents of Farm Road that, in short, their private road does not exist. The county says the road isn't on any official records, so the residents don't have any addresses. So basically, they don't have a right to use that land. The residents' federal complaint against the county was dismissed in 2011, but a group called Save Sandy Spring continues to fight. And several kinship communities away in Scotland, Maryland.
10: This is Rebecca Shear. Hi, Rebecca, I'm Bernard. This is nice Bernard Scott. Nice to meet you, Scotland. Bernard.
0: People definitely know a thing or two about fighting. We're in the historic Scotland AME Zion Church on Seven Locks Road, where Pastor Adrian Nelson is introducing me to 63-year-old Bernard Scott.
10: I am a resident of Scotland for 45 years. I no longer live in Scotland, but I've adopted Scotland as my home and the Scotland residents as my family. And I hope they feel the same way, too.
0: Scott has become an amateur historian on the town of Scotland, which first came into the hands of an ex-slave in 1880. But by the 1960s, the place was pretty much a mess. Uh,
10: when I came in this area in 1968, this Seven Locks Road was a dirt road. Uh, I know this is radio, but this is basically what the uh, the housing in the area looked like. As you can see, these are basically shacks with no plumbing, no inside bathrooms, and right up the road there, most of the well-to-do Potomac residents were already there. So this area here was being uh, neglected.
0: That word, neglected, that may be an understatement. In 1964, Scotland was so run down that the county nearly condemned it, which is why, in 1965, black residents and some of their white neighbors formed a new kind of union. Save our Scotland, S.O.S. To save this town they held so dear. Another minister was here at the time, and I can't remember saying it, but he told me, I said, I'll die for Scotland. Well, all these years later, 77-year-old Betty Thompson is alive and well in Scotland and full of memories of how she and her fellow SOSers tackled the community's housing problems. First, we raised money by combining the residents' land and selling all but 12 acres to the Montgomery County Park and Planning Commission. Then, after fighting to obtain zoning rights, they went through the Department of Housing and Urban Development to create 100 brand-new houses, 75 to rent, And then 25 of us brought our own. And by 1971, residents of Scotland were able to move into their own townhomes, all equipped with heating, electricity, and water. They also finally got a laundromat, a daycare center, a community center, and public transportation. And Bernard Scott says it was all thanks to that age-old tradition of kinship.
10: In a very difficult time, there was a great group of people who were able to stick together and keep their heads up when everybody else was trying to separate them and knock their heads off.
0: Scott says although Scotland is no longer as thriving as it once was, he has high hopes for its future. Residents past and present continue to gather each August for Scotland Community Day. And the more than 100-year-old Scotland AME Zion Church is still a major hub for what Scott calls the Scotland family.
10: Family is an institution where love lives. And if there are 17 people living in one house... They're going to fuss, they're going to argue, they're going to step on each other's toes, but they're never going to stop loving each other. And that's the way Scotland is.
0: Back in Sandy Spring, John Muller says that's the way all kinship communities in Montgomery County have traditionally been, because of their residents' many shared experiences.
3: You know, A shared experience would be surviving, thriving as a community against like, all odds or against the prevailing attitudes of the day. Everyone essentially works to support the whole community. And in turn, in true kinship, the whole community
0: works to support them. bring you more from Sandy Spring on our March 8th edition of the show, when we'll dig deeper into that land dispute that residents say has prevented them from using their property. So stay tuned. We'll head back to the district now for this month's edition of D.C. Gigs. This time around, Jocelyn Frank takes us to one of the city's most iconic hotels, the Willard Intercontinental, to meet Stephen Blum, a man who's been interacting with all sorts of people, including numerous U.S. presidents, for more than a quarter of a century. Welcome to the
7: Willard Intercontinental. 1401 Pennsylvania Avenue. The best view you can imagine from your office window, the United States Capitol building. Turn to the right. Within a two minute walk, you'll be at the doors of the White House, the East Gate. What an address to work at. Excuse me. My name is Stephen Blom. I am the Uniformed Services Director at the Willard Intercontinental Hotel. I began as the hotel doorman in 1986, and I remained the doorman for approximately seven years, and then I moved inside as manager. I managed the doorman and the bellman and uh, the ambassador of the lobby. I knew about the Willard's history even before I came to work here. Going back to 1816 and 1840s, uh, Abraham Lincoln stayed here. The term lobbyist was coined in the lobby of this hotel. You never know what to expect. The first morning that I was scheduled on my own that day, I'd only been a bellman at another hotel for a few months, and uh, I heard someone coming through the door, and I turned around, and I was like, and it was Jimmy Stewart.
10: Well, come in for a minute.
7: I greeted him, and he asked me, how long have I walked to the White House? Should I get a car? I said, no, car wouldn't help, but you could walk three minutes and sort of knock on the door. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I remember that was my first celebrity. One of the things I always enjoy is we have a high number of diplomatic arrivals here at the hotel. And you have the motorcade coming and the Secret Service and the police and everything's locked, locked off. You could hear the sirens of the motorcade coming down the street. And the only person allowed behind the police lines with the exception of security, it's just me. And I, there's still, even to this day, after 27 years of doing this, there's an excitement when you hear the motorcade coming and the sirens, you know, and you get pumped up. You know, and it's it, yeah every president since James Buchanan has come here. I've greeted from Gerald Ford on. And I, I got actually got to know Gerald Betty Ford by the that they would know me by my first name. It takes a lot of smiling, a lot of charisma, and, you know, you adapt to the guests for that day. I can't be the third baseman for the Washington Nationals, but then the third baseman for the Washington Nationals might not be able to do my job either. <laughs>
0: That was Stephen Blum, the Uniform Services Director of the Willard Intercontinental Hotel, speaking with reporter Jocelyn Frank. Experience. If you have a distinctively DC gig you think we should feature on the show, let us know. Send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at wamu metro. Everybody's working for the weekend. Wow,
10: now, the
0: new now. Time now for DC dives. <wilsonil Ishiq>
12: What is a dive bar?
3: It's a glorious dump.
12: It's got to have an interesting staff and an interesting crowd.
3: It's got to be dark. It's got to be old.
0: Typically, it's got to be cheap. In the latest edition of our monthly series on local dive bars, Jared Walker takes us to a favorite neighborhood watering hole in Arlington, one whose days may be numbered.
12: It's Friday night, and I'm hanging out at Jay's Saloon and Grill on North 10th Street in Clarendon. With its screened-in porch, this dive bar looks like any of the homes just down the street. Owners Kathy and James Moore say there's a simple reason why.
5: We've been around since 1993, Mm -hmm. and it was a heating
0: and air conditioning place before that. And before that, it obviously was a house.
1: I have one customer whose mother, I think, lived in this house in the 1920s.
12: Although this building is now the neighborhood bar, Customers are still encouraged to make themselves right at home.
1: It's nothing fancy. You know, you don't get white tablecloths. We don't have a wine list. Our wine list is like red or white. (laughs) It's uh, just, just very laid back, and you can come in and be yourself. James says this
12: lack of formality stands out on the rapidly changing block.
1: Compared to a lot of places in this area, in the Clarendon area, well, the whole northern virginia area it's we're just well i mean look around we're very unpretentious
12: (laughs) (laughs) to hammer home that point bar regular tom who doesn't want us to use his last name gives me a tour
10: we got bricks down here
5: we got plaster over here with holes in it usually only has two bathrooms one for the girls one for the boys but it doesn't matter you go in either one (laughs) missing paint off the walls, leaks from the roof. You notice that's a leak onto the pool table and onto the world's smallest pool table. This is the world's smallest pool table. This should be a bumper pool table, but here
10: it is in Jay's. And we still have a 13 inch color Sony television set from probably, I would say 1982.
12: And it works. That's a dive bar. And just when you think the place couldn't get any quirkier,
9: This is even a reading room, a romance reading room.
12: In disbelief, I follow Tom to a corner where he shows me the bar's book exchange, which is well-stocked with cheap paperback suspense and romance novels of the Fabio variety. Who who knew? You know, why here? I have not...
10: (laughs) That's a good question. The best part is is I don't know who's doing them. But somebody's coming in and they're reading them
5: and taking them out and trading them. So, hey, more power to her. <laughs> or him.
12: Despite the patronage of a horde of loyal regulars like Tom and the unknown librarian, owner James Moore says that Jay's Saloon may soon shutter its doors.
1: Honestly, it's out of my hand. Uh, I don't own the property. Uh, they, I've been told that they're going to tear everything down and put up more condos. So um, we'll just have to wait
12: and see. But even if the worst happens, James is at peace with his life's work.
1: It's been my baby. You know, I I never had kids, so this was my kid. Uh, And I think 20 years is a pretty good run, you know? We should make it through September, unless they come in and say, hey, we want to tear everything down now, so we want to buy you out of your lease. But we should make it through September, which will be 20 years, so uh, longest I ever held a job in my life. (laughs) And uh, who knows, knock on wood, maybe we will be around 20 more years. Bartender Dan Gallagher
12: says the bar will be missed greatly whenever it finally closes its doors.
1: It's going to be sad. I've heard Jay's referred to as the last bastion of hope in Arlington. It's also been described as the only non-pretentious place left in Arlington. Um... So I think when that time comes, there's going to be a lot of people looking for the next Jays.
12: But there's only one Jays Saloon. I'm Jared Walker.
0: You can see photos of Jays Saloon on our website, MetroConnection.org. And if you have a favorite dive bar you think we should check out, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is Metro at WAMU.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Jonathan Wilson, Martin DeCaro, and Jared Walker, along with reporters Matt M. Casey and Jocelyn Frank. Speaking of reporters, we say a very fond farewell today to one of the most talented we've ever met.
11: Fish fly everywhere. Glints of silver flash over the surface as fish of all types start spasming. Wrapped inside wet balls of moss are six endangered frogs. A field team spent weeks searching for them in the. Curator at the National Zoo, she says they have to watch these two pandas because basically, they're really bad at getting intimate. Like really, they they're terrible.
0: That, of course, was the one and only Sabri Benashore. But don't despair, you'll still be able to hear him on our airwaves as a reporter for Marketplace. Sabri, we wish you the very, 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 very best in all your future reporting adventures. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our interns are Rachel Schuster and Robbie Feinberg. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing online anytime. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher. We hope you can join us next week when we'll defy those stereotypes about the district being a town of temporary visitors with a show we're calling Homegrown D.C. We'll delve into the utopian origins of Langston Terrace, D.C.'s first public housing project. We'll meet a cabbie who doubles as a filmmaker. And we'll meet the members of a D.C. band who weren't just born and bred in the Washington region. They sing about it.
11: Whether or not we play or don't play jumbo slice during a set is sort of always a central question in the creation of a set list. It's like, are we doing it tonight or are we not doing it tonight?
0: I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.